Welcome to Public Domain Playhouse's rendition of Call of the Wild by Jack London. This story was originally published in 1903. It's set in the Yukon up in northern Canada. And ironically, a lot of people reached the Yukon of Canada from the United States back in this time of the the country's history by going through Alaska. But in 1903, this story is set in Yukon, Canada during the 1890s Klondike Gold Rush when strong sled dogs were in high demand. The central character of the novel is a dog named Buck, and the story opens on a ranch in Santa Clara Valley, California. Beautiful, sunny California. And I'm not going to spoil any more of the story of it as we're going to jump into that here. But before we do, I wanted to talk a little bit more about Jack London. Jack London is a story in and of himself. A little bit of background on London. He, um, he traveled pretty extensively throughout his short life. He only lived to be 40 years old. But at the time, he was a California native. So it kind of mirrors exactly Buck's history. Buck starts off in California, too. That's all I'm going to tell you about the story so far. Jack London, a California native, he traveled around the United States actually as a hobo. He drifted around and found out basically after being arrested for vagrancy at one point that it was better to be educated. He, he returned to California to finish studying high school because he had dropped out at the age of 14 and he spent a year in college at Berkeley and then in 1897 boom the gold rush hit he went to Klondike Alaska during the height of that Klondike gold rush later on he said of the experience that it was in the Klondike that I found myself So truly, his adventures are caught in some small part in The Call of the Wild. London left California in July and traveled by boat to Daia, Alaska. Daia, Alaska. That's where he landed and went inland. To reach the gold fields that he was seeking, he and his party had to transport their gear over something called the Chilkoot Pass. They were often carrying packs on their back that weighed as much as 100 pounds. These men that London was hanging with were successful in staking claims to eight gold mines along the Stewart River. London stayed in the Klondike for almost a year, living temporarily in the frontier town of Dawson City before moving to a nearby winter camp, where he spent an entire winter in a temporary shelter reading the books that he had brought which included Charles Darwin's On the Origin of Species and John Milton's Paradise Lost. In the winter of 1898, Dawson City was a city comprising of about 30,000 men, while miners, a saloon, an opera house, and of course, the prostitutes who worked at the brothels. In that next spring, London himself found that as the annual gold stampeders began to stream in, he decided to leave. Over the long course history of winter without any kind of citrus fruit, 
London contracted scurvy, which was common in those long Arctic winters where fresh produce was unavailable. But when his gums began to swell, he decided it was time to return to California. There, with his companions now, he rafted 2,000 miles home down the Yukon River through portions of the wildest territory in the region until they reached St. Michael. There in St. Michael, London hired himself out on a boat to earn passage back to San Francisco. In Alaska, London found the material that inspired him to write The Call of the Wild. Daia Beach was a primary point of arrival for miners when London traveled through there. But because its access was so treacherous, Skagway soon became a new arrival point for prospectors. Now, to reach the Klondike, miners had to navigate White Pass. It's also known as Dead Horse Pass, where horse carcasses littered the route because they could not survive the harsh and steep ascent. So horses were actually replaced then with dogs as pack animals. And these dogs would transport materials over that pass. Particularly strong dogs with thick fur were, quote-unquote, much desired, scarce, and high in price. During his travels, London would have seen many dogs, especially prized husky sled dogs in Dawson City, and in the winter camps situated close to the main sled route. London was friends with Marshall Latham Bond and his brother Lewis Whitford Bond. These guys were the owners of a mixed St. Bernard Scotch Collie dog, about which London later wrote, Yes, Buck is based on your dog at Dawson. The depiction of the California ranch at the beginning of the story that we're about to get into was based on the Bond family ranch. One quick word about publication history... On London's return to California, he was unable to find any work and had to rely on odd jobs, such as cutting grass. He submitted a query letter to the San Francisco Bulletin proposing a story about his Alaskan adventure, but the idea was soundly rejected because, as the editor told him, interest in Alaska had subsided in an amazing degree. A few years later, London wrote a short story about a dog named Batard who, at the end of the story, kills his master. London sold the piece to Cosmopolitan Magazine, which published it in June 1902 issue under the title Diablo, a Dog. London's biographer, Earl Labors, says that London then began to work on The Call of the Wild to redeem the species from the dark characterization of dogs in Batard. So, expecting to write a short story, London explained, I meant it to be a companion to my other dog story, Batard, but it got away from me, and instead of 4,000 words, it ran 32,000 before I could call it a halt. Written as a frontier story about the gold rush, The Call of the Wild was meant for the pulp market. It was first published in four installments in the Saturday Evening Post, which bought it for $750 in 1903. Them's 1903 serial wages. In that same year, London sold all the rights to the story for $2,000 to Macmillan, which published it in book format. The book has never been out of print since that time. 
The first edition by Macmillan, released in August 1903, had 10 tipped-in color plates by illustrators Philip R. Goodwin and Charles Livingston Bull. I always like to talk about illustrators. One of the things that I'm trying to do with Public Domain Playhouse is to bring some of this old fiction to life for everybody, myself most of all. And I hope you enjoy it as well. Also in the, that original edition, a color fronts piece by Charles Edward Hooper. The book sold for $1.50, and it's presently available with the original illustrations at the Internet Archive. So make sure you go and check that out. A movie was made of The Call of the Wild for the first time shown in 1935 as a black and white film called Call of the Wild, not The Call of the Wild. So, The Call of the Wild falls into the genre of animal fiction, in which an animal is anthropomorphized. Is that, is that how you say it? Anthropomorphized, being given human traits. In this story, The Call of the Wild, London attributes human thoughts and insights to the dog. I will tell you that much. He does this so much so that when the story was first published, he was accused of being a nature faker. Fake nature of being a nature faker for attributing unnatural feelings to a dog. Along with his contemporaries Frank Norris and Theodore Drazer, London was influenced by the naturalism of the European writers like Emily Zola, in which such themes as heredity versus environment were explored. London's use of the genre gave it a new vibrancy, according to scholar Richard Lehan. This story is also an example of American pastoralism. It's a prevailing theme throughout American literature in which a mythic hero returns to nature. As with other characters of American literature, such as Rip Van Winkle and Huckleberry Finn, Buck the dog symbolizes a reaction against industrialization and social convention with a return back to nature, back to his roots, back to the wild. London presents the motif simply, clearly, and powerfully in the story, and the motif is later echoed in a 20th century writers such as William Faulkner and Ernest Hemingway, most notably with Hemingway in Big Two-Hearted River. Dr. O says of the story that it is fervently American. The enduring appeal of The Call of the Wild, according to American literature scholar Donald Pizer, is that it's a combination of allegory, parable, and fable. The story incorporates elements of the age-old animal fables, like in Aesop's fables, in which animals speak truth, and traditional beast fables, in which uh, the beast substitutes its wit for insight. London was influenced by Rudyard Kipling's The Jungle Book, which was written just a few years earlier, with its combination of parable and animal fable and by other animal stories as well, popular in the 20th century. In The Call of the Wild, London intensifies and adds layers of meaning that are lacking in the other stories. It should be noted as a writer, London tended to skimp on form, according to his biographer, Labor. And neither The Call of the Wild nor White Fang is a conventional novel. 
The story follows the archetypal myth of the hero. Buck, who is the hero, takes a journey, is transformed, and achieves an apotheosis. An apotheosis. What is an apotheosis? An apotheosis is the glorification of a subject to divine level. The term has meanings in theology, where it refers to a belief, and in art, where it refers to a genre. So, Buck the hero takes a journey, is transformed, and achieves this devout status. The format of the story is divided into four distinct parts according to labor. The first part, Buck experiences violence and struggles for survival. I hope I'm not ruining this too much for you as we get ready to start reading. In the second part, Buck proves himself a leader. I'm, we're not going to go into it anymore. I'm not going to ruin it anymore. So, London's story is a tale of survival and a return to primitivism. There's also evidence of a Christian theme of love and redemption as shown by the actions in the story as well. Writing in the introduction to the modern library edition of The Call of the Wild, E.L. Doctorow says the theme of The Call of the Wild is based on Darwin's survival of the fittest. Edward Lawrence Doctorow, by the way, is an American novelist, editor, and professor who's known internationally for his works of historical fiction. He's been described as one of the most important American novelists of the 20th century. So he says The Call of the Wild is based on Darwin's concept of survival of the fittest. London places Buck in conflict with humans, and in conflict with other dogs, as you'll come to see and in conflict with his environment, all of which he must challenge, survive, and conquer. Buck, a domesticated dog in the beginning, must call on his atavistic hereditary traits to survive. Buck must learn to be wild to become wild, according to Tino Gianquito. He learns that in a world where the club and the fang are law, where the law of the pack rules and the good-natured dogs can be torn to pieces by a pack of its own members, that survival by whatever means is paramount. London also explores the idea of nature versus nurture in The Call of the Wild. Buck in the beginning is raised as a pet, but by heredity he has wolf blood in him. The change of his environment as he moves from one place to another brings up his innate characteristics and strengths to the point where he fights for survival and becomes leader of the pack, maybe? Pizer describes how the story reflects human nature and its prevailing theme of strength, particularly in the face of harsh circumstances. The veneer of civilization is very fragile, writes Dr. O, and London exposes the brutality at the core of humanity and the ease with which humans revert to a state of primitivism themselves. His interest in Marxism is evidence in the sub-theme that Humanity is motivated by materialism, and his interest in Nietzschean philosophy is also shown by Buck's characterization as well. I know, pretty lofty comments from just such a small piece of fiction. I will be reading some accompanying pieces to the story, including the one that he wrote about the mad dogs that got dogs such a bad reputation to begin with. 
The first chapter, as we're about to find out, opens with the first quatrain of John Myers O'Hara's poem, Atavism, published in 1902 in The Bookman. The stanza outlines one of the main motifs of Call of the Wild, that Buck, when removed from the sun-kissed Santa Clara Valley where he's raised in California, will revert to his wolf heritage with its innate instincts and characteristics. The themes are conveyed through London's use of symbolism and imagery, which according to Labor, vary in different phases of the story. The imagery and symbolism in the first phase, to do with the journey and self-discovery, depict physical violence, with strong images of pain and blood. So let's get started. Sounds like it should be exciting. Although poor Buck, if it deals with pain and blood. But as we're about to find out, that's what the Call of the Wild is actually all about. So here we go. The Call of the Wild by Jack London. Chapter 1. Into the Primitive. Old longings nomadic leap, chafing at custom's chain. Again from its brumal sleep, wakens the faring strain. Buck did not read the newspapers, or he would have known that trouble was brewing. Not alone for himself, but for every Tidewater dog, strong of muscle, and with warm long hair from Puget Sound to San Diego. Because men, groping in the Arctic darkness, had found a yellow metal, and because steamship and transportation companies were booming the find, thousands of men were rushing into the Northland. These men wanted dogs, and the dogs they wanted were heavy dogs with strong muscles by which to toil, and furry coats to protect them from the frost. Buck lived at a big house in the sun-kissed Santa Clara Valley. Judge Miller's place, it was called. It stood back from the road, half hidden among the trees, through which glimpses could be caught of the wide, cool veranda that ran around its four sides. The house was approached by graveled driveways, which wound about through wide-spreading lawns and under the interlacing boughs of tall poplars. At the rear, things were even a more spacious scale than at the front. There were great stables where a dozen grooms and boys held forth. Rows of vine-clad servants' cottages, and endless and orderly array of outhouses, long grape arbors, green pasture, orchards, and berry patches. Then there was a pumping station from the artesian well, and the big cement tank where Judge Miller's boys took their morning plunge and kept cool in the hot afternoon. And over this great demean, Buck ruled. Here he was born, and here he had lived the four years of his life. It was true there were other dogs. There could not but be other dogs on so vast a place, but they did not count. They came and went, resided in the populous kennels, or lived obscurely in the recesses of the house after the fashion of Toots, the Japanese pug, or Isabel, the Mexican hairless. Strange creatures, 
that rarely put nose out of doors or set foot to ground. On the other hand, there were the fox terriers, a score of them at least, who yelped fearful promises at Toots and Isabel looking out of the windows at them, and protected by legion of housemaids armed with brooms and mops. But Buck was neither house dog nor kennel dog. The whole realm was his. He plunged into the swimming tank or went hunting with the judge's sons. He escorted Molly and Alice, the judge's daughters, on long twilight or early morning rambles. On wintry nights, he lay at the judge's feet before the roaring library fire. He carried the judge's grandsons on his back or rolled them in the grass and guarded their footsteps through wild adventures down to the fountain in the stable yard and even beyond where the paddocks were and the berry patches. Among the terriers, he stalked imperiously and Toots and Isabel, he utterly ignored for he was king king over all creeping, crawling, flying things of Judge Miller's place, humans included. His father, Elmo, a huge St. Bernard, had been the judge's inseparable companion, and Buck bid fair to follow in the way of his father. He was not so large, he weighed only 140 pounds, for his mother, Shep, had been a Scotch shepherd dog. Nevertheless, 140 pounds to which was added the dignity that comes of good living and universal respect enabled him to carry himself in right royal fashion. During the four years since his puppyhood, he had lived the life of a sated aristocrat. He had a fine pride in himself and was even a trifle egotistical, as country gentlemen sometimes become, because of their insular situation. But... He had saved himself by not becoming a mere pampered house dog. Hunting and kindred outdoor delights had kept down the fat and hardened his muscles. And to him, as to the cold tubbing races, the love of water had been a tonic and a health preserver. And this was the manner of dog buck was in the fall of 1897, when the Klondike strike dragged men from all the world into the frozen north. But Buck did not read the newspapers, and he did not know that Manuel, one of the gardener's helpers, was an undesirable acquaintance. Manuel had one besetting sin. He loved to play Chinese lottery. Also in his gambling, he had one besetting weakness. Faith in a system, and this made his damnation certain, for to play a system requires money, while the wages of a gardener's helper do not lap over the needs of a wife and numerous progeny. The judge was at a meeting of the Raisin Growers Association, and the boys were busy organizing an athletic club on the memorable night of Manuel's treachery. No one saw him and Buck go off through the orchard on what Buck imagined was merely a stroll. And with the exception of a solitary man, no one saw them arrive at the little flag station known as College Park. This man talked with Manuel, and money chinked between them. You might wrap up the goods before you deliver them, the stranger said gruffly. And Manuel doubled a piece of stout rope around Buck's neck under the collar. Twist it and you'll choke him plenty, said Manuel. And the stranger grunted a ready affirmative. 
Uh-huh. Buck had accepted the rope with quiet dignity, to be sure it was an unwanted performance. But he had learned to trust in men he knew, and to give them credit for a wisdom that outreached his own. But when the ends of the rope were placed in the stranger's hands, he growled menacingly. He had merely intimated his displeasure, in his pride believing that to intimidate was to command. But to his surprise, the rope tightened around his neck, shutting off his breath. In quick rage, he sprang at the man who met him halfway, grappled him close by the throat, and with a deft twist, threw him over on his back. Then the rope tightened mercilessly while Buck struggled in a fury, his tongue lolling out of his mouth and his great chest panting futilely. Never in all his life had he been so vilely treated, and never in all his life had he been so angry. But his strength ebbed, his eyes glazed, and he knew nothing when the train was flagged and the two men threw him into the baggage car. The next he knew, he was dimly aware that his tongue was hurting and that he was being jolted along in some kind of a conveyance. The hoarse shriek of a locomotive whistling a crossing told him where he was. He had traveled too often with the judge not to know the sensation of riding in a baggage car. He opened his eyes, and in them came the unbridled anger of a kidnapped king. The man sprang for his throat, but Buck was too quick for him. His jaws closed on the hand, nor did they relax till his senses were choked out of him once more. Yep, has fits. The man said, hiding his mangled hand from the baggage men who had been attracted by the sounds of the struggle. I'm taking him up for the boss to Frisco. A crack dog doctor there thinks he can cure him. Concerning that night's ride, the man spoke most eloquently for himself and a little shed back of a saloon on the San Francisco waterfront. All I get is 50 for it, he grumbled and I wouldn't do it over for a thousand cold cash. His hand was wrapped in a bloody handkerchief, and the right trouser leg was ripped from knee to ankle. How much did the other mug get? The saloon keeper demanded. A hundred, was the reply. Wouldn't take a sow less, so help me. That makes a hundred and fifty, the saloon keeper calculated. And he's worth it, or I'm a square head. The kidnapper undid the bloody wrappings and looked at his lacerated hand. If I don't get the hydrophobia, it'll be because you was born to hang, <laughs> laughed the saloon keeper. Yeah, lend me a hand before you pull your freight, he added. Dazed, suffering intolerable pain from throat and tongue, with the life half-throttled out of him, Buck attempted to face his tormentor. But he was thrown down and choked repeatedly till they succeeded in filing the heavy brass collar from off his neck. Then the rope was removed and he was flung into a cage-like crate. There he lay for the remainder of the weary night, nursing his wrath and wounded pride. He could not understand what it all meant. What did they want with him, these strange men? 
Why were they keeping him pent up in this narrow crate? He did not know why, but he felt oppressed by the vague sense of impending calamity. Several times during the night, he sprang to his feet when the shed door rattled open, expecting to see the judge, or the boys at least. But each time it was the bulging face of the saloon keeper that peered in at him by the sickly light of a tallow candle. And each time the joyful bark that trembled in Buck's throat was twisted into a savage growl. But the saloon keeper let him alone, and in the morning four men entered and picked up the crate. More tormentors, Buck decided, for they were evil-looking creatures, ragged and unkempt, and he stormed and raged at them through the bars. They only laughed and poked sticks at him, which he promptly assailed with his teeth, till he realized that was what they wanted it. Whereupon he lay down sullenly and allowed the crate to be lifted into a wagon. Then he and the crate, in which he was imprisoned, began a passage through many hands. Clerks in the express office took charge of him. He was carted about in another wagon. A truck carried him, with an assortment of boxes and parcels upon a ferry steamer. He was tucked off the steamer into a great railway depot, and finally, he was deposited into an express car. For two days and nights, this express car was dragged along at the tail of shrieking locomotives. And for two days and nights, Buck neither ate nor drank. In his anger, he had met the first advances of the express messengers with growls, and they had retaliated by teasing him. When he flung himself against the bars, quivering and frothing, they laughed at him and taunted him. They growled and barked like detestable dogs, mewed and flapped their arms and crowed. That was all very silly, he knew. But therefore, the more outrage to his dignity and his anger waxed and waxed. He did not mind the hunger so much, but the lack of water caused him severe suffering and fanned his wrath to fever pitch. For that matter, high, strung, and finely sensitive, the ill treatment had flung him into a fever, which was fed by the inflammation of his parched and swollen throat and tongue. He was glad for one thing, the rope was off his neck. That had given them an unfair advantage. But now that it was off, he would show them. They would never get another rope around his neck. Upon that, he was resolved. For two days and nights, he neither ate nor drank. And during those two days and nights of torment, he accumulated a fund of wrath that boded ill for whoever first fell foul of him. His eyes turned bloodshot, and he was metamorphosed into a raging fiend. So changed was he that the judge himself would not have recognized him, and the express messengers breathed with relief when they bundled him off the train at Seattle. Four men gingerly carried the crate from the wagon into a small, high-walled backyard. A stout man with a red sweater that sagged generously at the neck came out and signed the book for the driver. That was the man, Buck divined, the next tormentor, 
and he hurled himself savagely against the bars. The man smiled grimly and brought a hatchet and a club. You ain't gonna take him out now, the driver asked. Sure, the man replied, driving the hatchet into the crate for the pry. There was an instantaneous scattering of the four men who had carried it in, and from safe perches on top of the wall, they prepared to watch the performance. Buck rushed at the splintering wood, sinking his teeth into it, surging and wrestling with it. Wherever the hatchet fell on the outside, he was there on the inside, snarling and growling as furiously anxious to get out as the man in the red sweater was calmly intent on getting him out. Now, you red-eyed devil, he said, when he made an opening sufficient for the passage of Buck's body. At the same time, he dropped the hatchet and shifted the club to his right hand. And Buck was truly a red-eyed devil, as he drew himself together for the spring, hair bristling, mouth foaming, a mag glitter in his bloodshot eyes. Straight at the man, he launched his 140 pounds of fury, surcharged with the pent passion of two days and nights. In midair, just as his jaws were about to close on the man, he received a shock that checked his body and brought his teeth together with an agonizing clip. He whirled over, fetching the ground on his back and side. He had never been struck by a club in his life and did not understand. With a snarl that was part bark and more scream, he was again on his feet and launched into the air. And again the shock came and he was brought crushingly to the ground. This time he was aware that it was the club. But his madness knew no caution. A dozen times he charged and as often the club broke the charge and smashed him down. After a particularly fierce blow, he crawled to his feet, too dazed to rush. He staggered limply about, the blood flowing from his nose and mouth and ears, his beautiful coat sprayed and flecked with bloody slaver. Then the man advanced and deliberately dealt him a frightful blow on the nose. All the pain he had endured was as nothing compared with the exquisite agony of this. With a roar that was almost lion-like in its ferocity, he again hurled himself at the man. But the man, shifting the club from right to left, coolly caught him by the underjaw, and at the same time wrenching downward and backward. Buck described a complete circle in the air and half of another. They crashed to the ground with his head and chest. For the last time he rushed, the man struck the shrewd blow he had purposely withheld for so long, and Buck crumpled up and went down, knocked utterly senseless. He's no slouch at dog-breaking, that's what I say, one of the men on the wall cried enthusiastically. Druther break Caius's any day on twice on Sundays, was the reply of the driver, as he climbed on the wagon and started the horses. Buck's senses came to him, but not his strength. He lay where he had fallen, and from there he watched the man in the red sweater. Answers to the name of Buck, the man soliloquized, quoting from the saloon keeper's letter which had announced the consignment of the crate and contents. 
Well, Buck, my boy, he went on in a genial voice, we've had our little ruction, and the best thing we can do is let it go at that. You've learned your place, and I know mine. Be a good dog, and all will go well, and the goose will hang high. Be a bad dog, and I'll wail the stuffing out of you. Understand? As he spoke, he fearlessly patted the head he had so mercilessly pounded. And though Buck's hair involuntarily bristled at the touch of the hand, he endured it without protest. When the man brought him water, he drank eagerly, and later bolted a generous meal of raw meat, chunk by chunk, from the man's hand. He was beaten, he knew that, but he was not broken. He saw once for all that he stood no chance against a man with a club. He had learned the lesson. And in all his afterlife, he never forgot it. The club was a revelation. It was his introduction to the reign of primitive law. And he met the introduction halfway. The facts of life took on a fiercer aspect. And while he faced that aspect uncowed, he faced it with all the latent cunning of his nature aroused. As the days went by, other dogs came. In crates and at the ends of ropes, some docilely and some raging and roaring as he had come. And, one and all, he watched them pass under the dominion of the man in the red sweater. Again and again, as he looked at each brutal performance, the lesson was driven home to Buck. A man with a club was a lawgiver. A master to be obeyed, though not necessarily conciliated. Of this last, Buck was never guilty though he did see beaten dogs that fawned upon the man and wagged their tails and licked his hand. Also, he saw one dog that would neither conciliate nor obey, finally killed in the struggle for mastery. Now and again, men came, strangers, who talked excitedly, wheedlingly, in all kinds of fashions to the man in the red sweater. And at such times that money passed between them, the strangers took one or more of the dogs away with them. Buck wondered where they went, for they never came back. But the fear of the future was strong upon him, and he was glad each time when he was not selected. Yet his time came in the end, in the form of a little weazened man who spat broken English and many strange and uncouth exclamations which Buck could not understand. Sacre dame, he cried, and his eyes lit upon Buck. That one damn bully dog, eh? How much? Three hundred, and a present at that, was the prompt reply of the man in the red sweater. And seeing it's government money, you ain't got no kick coming, eh, Perrault? Perrault grinned. Considering that the price of dogs had been boomed skyward by the unwanted demand, it was not an unfair sum for so fine an animal. The Canadian government would be no loser, nor would its dispatches travel the slower. Peral knew dogs, and when he looked at Buck, he knew that he was one in a thousand. One in ten thousand, he commented mentally. Buck saw money pass between them, and was not surprised when Curly, a good-natured Newfoundland, and he were led away by the little weasened man. That was the last he saw of the man in the red sweater. And as Curly and he looked at receding Seattle from the deck of the Narwhal, it was the last he saw of the warm Southland. Curly and he were taken below by Peral and turned over to a black-faced giant called Francois. 
Perrault was a French-Canadian and swarthy, but Francois was a French-Canadian half-breed and twice as swarthy. They were a new kind of men to Buck, of which he was destined to see many more. And while he developed no affection for them, he nonetheless grew honestly to respect them. He speedily learned that Perrault and Francois were fair men, calm and impartial in administering justice, and too wise in the ways of dogs to be fooled by dogs. In the tween decks of the narwhal, Buck and Curly joined two other dogs. One of them was a big snow-white fellow from Spitzbergen, who had been brought away by a whaling captain, and who had later accompanied a geological survey into the barrens. He was friendly in a treacherous sort of way smiling into one's face while he meditated some underhand trick, as, for instance, when he stole from Buck's food at the first meal. As Buck sprang to punish him, the lash of Francois's whip sang through the air, reaching the culprit first, and nothing remained to Buck but to recover the bone. That was fair of Francois, he decided, and the half-breed began his rise in Buck's estimation. The other dog made no advances, nor received any. Also, he did not attempt to steal from the newcomers. He was a gloomy, morose fellow, and he showed Curly plain that all he desired was to be left alone, and further, that there would be trouble if he were not left alone. Dave, he was called, and he ate and slept or yawned between times and took interest in nothing not even when the narwhal crossed Queen Charlotte's Sound and rolled and pitched and bucked like a thing possessed. When Buck and Curly grew excited, half wild with fear, he raised his head as though annoyed, favored them with an incurious glance, yawned, and went to sleep again. Day and night the ship throbbed to the tireless pulse of the propeller, and though one day was very like another, it was apparent to Buck that the weather was steadily growing colder. At last one morning, the propeller was quiet, and the narwhal was pervaded with an atmosphere of excitement. He felt it, as did the other dogs, and knew that a change was at hand. Francois leashed them and brought them on deck. At the first step upon the cold surface, Buck's feet sank into a white, mushy something very like mud. He sprang back with a snort. More of this white stuff was falling through the air. He shook himself, but more of it fell upon him. He sniffed it curiously, then licked some up on his tongue. It bit like fire, and the next instant was gone. This puzzled him. He tried it again with the same result. The onlookers laughed uproariously, and he felt ashamed. He knew not why for it was his first snow. So there you have it. Chapter one from Jack London's The Call of the Wild. As we find out, Buck, the dog, was living the good life in sunny California when he is absconded with and stolen away and sold so that he could be put on a boat and taken up north where he finds snow for the first time. 
But before that, he also meets the man in the red sweater and receives a beating. That is basically his first foray into the Call of the Wild, learning the ultimate law of the dog pack, as it were. There's a lot of talk by London about Buck's worth. He's super strong, and he seems definitely like an alpha dog, which is highly desirable in a pack dog kind of situation. So join me next time for Chapter 2, The Law of Club and Fang. On behalf of everyone at Public Domain Playhouse, thank you for joining us. Make sure you come back and check us out, because there's always something new in the world of antiquity. This is Bart Benny saying, see you next time.